Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. And now, here's our host for Amda on the Go, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. This is Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. I'm going to be talking to Travis Neal, and we're going to talk about clinical decision-making and the biases and ways to avoid bias. I'm going to turn it over to um, Travis to introduce himself. Travis? Thank you, Diane. Um, So yeah, my name is Travis Neal. I am a physician assistant. I work in post-acute care um, and have for over a decade. Um, And I'm also an assistant medical director at a number of nursing facilities out here in Colorado, where I help Um, the uh, physician who is the main medical director at these facilities um, with various duties um, under the medical director purview. Thank you, Travis. And I've heard you speak um, on a multitude of topics. It's always exciting to hear you speak. So I think I probably geeked out when I read your um, article in Caring for the Ages that was published in April of 2022. So if anyone hasn't read it, it is worth the read. And I want to maybe start with the way you started the article. Can you share with us the experience that you had with your father? That was very moving for me. Sure. Yeah. And this, I mean, this really is the reason why the concept of bias in medical decision-making was really came to the forefront of, of my perceptions about, you know, my own decisions and in medical decision-making. So my my father passed away from uh, end-stage COPD back in 2012. And <clears throat> leading up to his death, um, he was on chronic oral prednisone. And we had tried um, you know, several times uh, to reduce his dose or him with his, you know, with his pulmonary doctor to reduce that dose and was unsuccessful in the sense that he had worsening Uh, breathing symptoms. And so he ended up staying on a dose of about 10 milligrams. And, you know, going through that process with my dad and, um, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, he died at the age of 70 and he and I were very close. And so, you know, it was a, it was a big event in my life. And um, as a result, uh, after he died, what I did not realize was that the use of prednisone and COPD became a very strong bias um, in my own uh, medical decision making, and I, I was not aware of this, and I basically began prescribing prednisone to pretty much everybody with COPD, 
And this is despite the fact that I had read the gold guidelines and I knew that that is not a recommended practice. Um, you know, there are certain patients that do benefit from oral prednisone chronically, um, but it's a very small number and it's really not a recommended practice. And for quite a while, um, this practice went on and I was not aware of it. And um, I began to receive feedback from either physicians I worked with or medical directors um, questioning it, uh, wondering why I was doing it. And I think I, I exhibited all the sort of telltale signs of an unconscious bias where I was, I rationalized my use. Um, I got defensive at times. Um, I think I, you know, had a pretty strong confirmation bias for information that supported my decision. And I discounted the information that, you know, that these, this prescribing habit um, may even do harm. And so this went on for a while until I became uh, a lead researcher for a COPD study in post-acute care. And I reviewed the regimens of, you know, hundreds of patients with COPD. And it just, I remember it just jumping out at me while I was doing this, how few patients were on uh, oral prednisone. And that combined with the gold guidelines, combined with, you know, the information as I was talking it through with uh, the chief medical officer um, for the facilities, I just suddenly realized that, uh-oh, I've had this really strong bias for this uh, practice for quite some time. And the entire experience just uh, surprised me because I had sort of prided myself on practicing or at least thinking in terms of evidence-based medicine as my compass and you know, even, you know, doing a lot of the assistant medical director work and, and really focusing on um, good practices and realized that, you know, I was not practicing what I preached. And it got me really thinking, what else do I do that is similar to that? And that, that's essentially the main event that led to my um, thinking more about bias in medicine, and it eventually led to the article that I wrote. Thank you for sharing that. I, I you know, that that's an amazing journey. And I think for you to have such self-awareness and to learn um, all of that on, on that journey is just amazing. You know, it made me think about some of the choices that I've made and really thinking about the way we practice medicine as a whole. And I thought it was a perfect way to, to, to really have this conversation to start off with such such a personal journey. When I think about this topic, the one thing I'm trying to understand is why is this so hard for clinicians? And I, I really would just love for you to, to maybe explore that with me. Why do you think it's so hard for clinicians to get to the point that you, you're at? Yeah, I think, I think there are a number of uh, reasons for that. I think one is that we are in a uh, in the practice of medicine, we are here to help people. And we, I think it's easy to identify with a lot of our decisions um, as being, you know, the, you know, do no harm, more altruistic, we are, you know, here to help. And so when those decisions can lead to harm, um, particularly if we I have some sense of identity with those de decisions, um, then we will experience a strong sort of cognitive dissonance 
um, when we receive information that those decisions led to harm or were just mistakes that we made, which happen all the time. Um, so I, I think that's a big one. I think I think identifying as a as a good person, as a good practitioner, um, and then those strong that strong identity can lead to um, a lot of uh, defensiveness and 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 really a, a a lack of awareness. I think of some of the information that is contrary to the decision that we made. Um, you know, I, I think the other the other aspect. Um, of this is is sort of, you know, we are we are not aware. I mean, the the very definition of um, unconscious bias is that we are not aware of these things, and so in order to uh, become aware of these, you really have to have people outside of yourself um, help you with that, and um, you also have to be open to it in the first place. And so, you know, I think having, you know, either a group of providers or people um, that you are openly discussing, you know, sort of criticisms of your care um, and, you know, what, you know, what are sometimes termed blind spots or, you know, really areas of our unconscious bias um, to help us become aware of it. So I, th I think those are the two, I think, you know, identifying with our decisions too much as, you know, that is who we are versus what we do. Um, and I think the the very nature of unconscious bias um, being unconscious that we are not aware of it. So we have to we have to have help to become aware of those things. Yeah, I, I could totally feel that. I think that um, in thinking about the cognitive dissonance that you write about, I wonder how we when what what happens when you feel that discomfort between um, what you you're doing and what you are now being presented with as maybe different information. It, it sort of reminds me of what, what has happened during the pandemic where we got, everyone was like, okay, we're gonna use this medication. We know it's um, um, maybe not the first line of medication or um, there's just these uh, studies that were very inconsistent showing that it may work. And the medication that comes top of mind because there were several um, hydroxychloroquine uh, I'm not even saying it right, hydroxychloroquine alone. <laughs> and it was one of those things where we were all, you, you still see people prescribing it or you still see um, things being ordered. And that was more of an acute um, situation. I think in thinking about some of these longer term um, treatment practices that we have employed it's interesting to think it, it, it's a challenge, right? Should we be rethinking how we're doing things? And are we doing and taking this cookie cutter approach to medicine because this is the way we've always done it? I just found that fascinating. Yeah, and, and I actually think the pandemic has highlighted bias in a big way um, in medicine. You know, I think it's brought, you know, political views into medicine. It's brought, you know, the the concept of, of of bias and and how that influences our decision making and you know the other part of that too is um as you were referencing sort of these long-standing practices is you know experience then can sometimes be um you know can can be harmful to our uh, ability to receive new information that may be contrary to a belief that we've held for a long time so this is where you know the 
the really experienced providers who have been doing this for 20 or 30 years, um, they are less likely over time um, in some cases to change a practice that they've been doing for a really long time. And so, you know, the, the very act of being an expert or being very experienced in something can actually uh, be a, to a detriment to um, strong held biases or beliefs. Um, the other part is the stronger the emotional reaction you have to something, um, some past experience, the stronger that your bias will be. And so if you have a negative experience uh, with a patient with a certain medication um, and it's and you have a really bad outcome, that's going to leave a much bigger impression on you um, than someone that did not have as bad of an outcome. And so you will you will hold a much stronger bias in the future um, when prescribing those things. But, uh, you know, I definitely agree that the pandemic has been, um, you know, really has really highlighted I think a lot of uh, the concepts uh, that I talk about here in medical decision-making. Yeah, and it, it makes me think um, what you said about being an expert. You know, we have a, a lot of people who want to be the um, subject matter expert um, in, in a different, different topics and who we may consider that. But what is more important and what we should be striving uh, to become is maybe have mastery over the content where you're not just stuck in being that expert of that one thing. You're really still learning and taking that expertise to a different level. And I heard a lecture on that and I saw people in the room who became quite animated because they didn't believe the difference between expertise and mastery. And I just thought it was interesting to see um, to see how, how much debate that caused. But when we're thinking about the clinical care and medicine, one of the most attractive elements of this field for me was the fact that it changes. It um, There is research being done and there is new information. So I, I wonder how do we embrace the discomfort that we may feel uh, so that we can learn and, and keep developing? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting to to see, I think, when you really explore the concepts of bias, because we all have bias in all of our decisions. I mean, it is, it's a, it's just a part of human thinking. We need it. Um, it's a, it's a, a survival tool that allows us to process the sheer volume of information that we have to process. And so, you know, we have to categorize things. We have to, you know, we have stereotypes and prejudices that are just part of our um, daily sort of mental functioning in order to, to process the information. And then in medicine, you know, as we deal with, you know, a high volume of patients and the number of decisions we have to make in a day, um, it becomes necessary for us to make these, you know, quick judgments and categoriz categorizations. Um, I think the, the, the art of this is to, one, become aware that this happens, that this is just part of human nature, um, and that we all hold these unconscious biases. And the other is to try to hold the beliefs just light enough um, that you can receive information that's contrary to them. And that is uncomfortable. So like you said, it, to, to find you know, the, the sort of comfort in the uncomfortable and actually seek it out. And I think that, at least in my experience, the more you do that, 
um, the more you actually realize that there's a lot of confidence that comes from, you know, realizing sort of the limits of your own perception that, you know, you are, you know, you're subject to your own experiences and, and your own feelings, um, you know, how you feel that day can actually affect uh, a lot of your decision making. And so, you know, just the awareness of that and then the practice of sort of leaning into that discomfort and saying, oh, you know, I'm, I have a patient that's telling me that, you know, this isn't working or they're, you know, they're mentioning a side effect I know and it's uncomfortable because, you know, I made this decision. I'm, you know, I thought it was a good decision, um, but leaning into that a little bit and over time, I think you can get uh, actually comfortable in that and that whole process. And it, and it definitely, I believe, makes you a better provider. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Uh, um, let me ask you this. One of the strategies that you listed was separating the act of decision-making from our sense of identity. Can you explain more about that? Sure. So, you know, I think the, you know, it's separating the doing from the being. And I think this is true with, you know, not just in medicine, but a lot of our decisions, you know, we tend to associate all of our thoughts and our feelings, a lot of them with, you know, this is who I am, this defines me. When, you know, the the truth is, you know, that's all very fleeting. You know, it's it's, you know, everything comes and goes very quickly. You know, the, the particularly thoughts come and go really quickly. All the information that we have to take in uh, when we're diagnosing and, and treating a patient, you know, we're we're receiving information from multiple sources. A lot of times um, we're trying to perceive, you know, what not only the information itself, but, you know, who is presenting the information. And so there's a lot of factors that come into play. And so the idea that, you know, the decision that we make um, when we diagnose and treat somebody somehow defines who we are, you know, this, this is, you know, I am, you know, uh, I'm a provider that, you know, does good things and makes good decisions. Well, when we attach those decisions to that identity, then we will become very defensive um, when we receive information that, hey, that, that decision was not a good one. Or um, the other part of that is making mistakes, which also happens, you know, all the time as well. So, you know, we, we need to recognize the difference between, you know, the, all the factors that go into this decision making um, is not who we are. That is not a defining characteristics of who we are as a person. Um, you know, we are human and infallible and, you know, we make mistakes all the time. And we also, you know, have our own biases as in addition to the information we're receiving from patients and, and nurses. And so, you know, recognizing that there's a difference between our identity and those decisions will allow us to, um, receive information that's contrary to the decision that we made. And so it's, it's a real, it's a really important distinction, I think that needs to be made. And um, it's easy to do. I think we can all get caught up in, you know, these decisions as defining us as, you know, a good person or a good provider. Um, and, you know, we we're in the business of helping people. So it, you know, it makes sense. Um, but it, it does lead to a lot more cognitive dissonance if we do that. Do you think that m maybe, I know there's the, the degree of unconscious bias we have, but 
wondering how much is um, also of that defensiveness is learned from the fact the nature of what medicine has become and the fact that uh, if I drive down the highway, I'm going to be bombarded by like maybe five or six billboards telling people how to sue either the nursing home or their doctor or something. How much does that play into that defensiveness that we may see amongst our clinical staff admitting that maybe this is not the right choice? Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think, you know, when we become more punitive, um, when there's more, you know, liability involved or, you know, the idea that even medical mistakes, um, you know, there was a recent article in Carrying It for the Ages talking about that, medical mistakes is, um, as being criminalized, then we are much less likely to admit mistakes and we are going to be, become a lot more defensive um, about the decisions that we make. And, you know, I, I like to, you know, the, the best providers that I've seen, you know, watching them in psych farm meetings and uh, in the environment in the nursing homes are the ones that they, they actually actively ask for, you know, contrary opinions to what they put out there. Or, you know, they say, does anyone, you know, think this is a bad idea? Does anyone, you know, and so they, they invite the idea that the decision that they made may not be uh, the right one. And that allows the staff that sort of uh, flexibility to um, offer those differing opinions. They feel comfortable uh, doing that versus having, you know, really, you know, a, a, a sort of strong, like this is the way it is, um, you know, a very ego-driven sort of style that will uh, diminish the amount of information you'll receive uh, back saying that, you know, hey, maybe this wasn't the right decision. But, you know, I think the the legal aspect uh, in medicine and, and really the regulatory aspect in nursing homes um, that, you know, our mistakes are going to be viewed through a, a punitive, a highly punitive or a criminal lens, then um, we're much more likely to um, get defensive and rationalize what we do. Yeah, and I think you listed um, the collaborative nature of post-acute and long-term care medicine as one of those uh, um, elements that allows for that open-minded exchange of ideas. And I, I definitely agree. That was one of the things that I found um, fun when we're sitting around coffee tables, it actually talking to each other and getting the, the buy-in and, and listening to others from different disciplines. I think that helps to, to really change the way you approach a decision. Yeah, I look at it as a real asset where, you know, how many areas of medicine do you have as many professionals who are viewing the same patients, looking through the charts, um, interacting with them. And so you have all these different viewpoints. And I think when you become open and inviting to those viewpoints, um, I, I think you make better decisions. I think it can also highlight, you know, those blind spots or those biases that that you might have. Um, and and then, you know, with providers, most uh, providers work with um, another provider. So physicians working with uh, physician assistants or nurse practitioners um, or physicians with each other. And so a lot of people were sharing these patients. And that's a really 
great opportunity as well um, to sort of be open and inviting about you know how how we're practicing and questioning each other and um, and that that is something that I think you know we could all we could all do a really good job of given the number of professionals that work in post acute care. Yeah, thank you. I I, re I really I think that as we keep talking about this with post acute long term care, we need to recognize that we have an advantage here because of the way we are supposed to be collaborating with each other in the community that we have. Let me ask you this. I, um, the section on making use of tripwires, you mentioned that we have pre-established standards of care or um, care plans, algorithms. And I was thinking about that and thinking about the, the multitude of decision support tools that are now built into um, EMRs that we may be deploying in our facilities. But my question is different than just the clinical decision um, making bias. What about the bias that may exist in those algorithms? You know, we've recently within our DEI um, work group and with some of the, the presentations that we were able to deliver at the, the co national conference uh, recently, the annual event, we talked about um, race correction and um, equations and um, how we need to move from race and ethnicity as biological factors. So in thinking about those types of biases, things that we may not even be aware of. What do we need to do or how have you um, approached that, uh, given that that's been a part of our training and um, it still remains, uh, unfortunately, a part of some of the clinical tools that we use? Yeah, definitely. I, um, you know, the pre-established tripwires and algorithms, I mean, when you look into bias in terms of the evidence itself in evidence-based medicine and publication bias, and there is a lot there. And so you, you have to consider that a lot of these, um, you know, standards of care or algorithms that we might use, um, that can be baked into those uh, existing systems. I think, I think it's hard because you have the systemic issues and then you have our own individual personal issues. Um, when it comes to, to biases. And I think the systemic issues are things that we can all sort of try to highlight and work together to identify, you know, these things. And when we see them, um, try to do a, a course correction. I think individually, it's it's more difficult. I think we have to do the hard work ourselves to, to take a look at our own decisions. But I do think that the algorithms and the tripwires can be helpful to help us identify when we might have a bias that is contrary to a, a given, you know, sort of a standardized practice. Um, you know, obviously we need to individualize our care and we don't follow these algorithms to the letter, but they're, you know, they're presumably based on, you know, good evidence and, and data. You also need to learn how to read data and learn how to you know, look into these things a little bit ourselves. And that's that's sort of a practice I think that we could all be a lot better at to identify some of these, um, I think more systemic based biases. But I think that's a lot more difficult um, to, to, to figure out without, I think, help. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And it's, you know, as I was reading it, I was just like, well, but what about that? And I think, to, to the point that you made earlier, um, not only in our conversation, but in your article, 
we have to keep an open mind and keep asking ourselves questions and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I, I think that that helps. Um, I do appreciate some of those decision support tools that, that you're like, oh yeah, let me do this, let me do that. And then maybe part of the art of medicine, again, is knowing I need to individualize it here. I need to think a little bit differently for this person. They're presenting different than what, um, what this algorithm may say. So maybe I need to challenge myself yet again um, to, to get to a different um, place. Yes, absolutely. And, and writing and, you know, putting that into writing is helpful too. I think encouraging providers and, and ourselves to, you know, if we, if we know something, if we're individualizing something and we, but it's against, you know, a, a pre-established sort of algorithm, then we should uh, document why we're doing that. And the act of writing it down um, is very helpful, I think, to identify when we might have a blind spot um, versus when we are you know, doing exactly that. We're individualizing the care and we've taken in other factors and considerations. And I run into this, um, I do a lot of antibiotic stewardship reviews. And so I, I run into this with, um, you know, our sort of McGeer's criteria and things that, you know, they're not really designed to be, you know, set in stone. This is, you know, you need to follow all these criteria, but we 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 use it as as a guide to say, hey, you know, we really need to, do a better job of following most of these criteria. And if we go outside that, then just document that. And, and that's something that I just try to reinforce with providers is saying, well, okay, then put it in writing and see how that feels. And, and oftentimes they'll come back and say, well, that, yeah, you, you might be right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't have ordered the UA in the first place, um, that type of thing. And so, so it's, I think it's helpful just to put it in writing and, and also to talk about it you know, amongst ourselves um, in, in things like QAPI and um, sort of sort of post post-clinical reviews, um, particularly between, you know, providers that share patients. In thinking of that example, I wonder then how do you have that conversation with let's say the the patient's um, daughter or son who's demanding the antibiotic and you know that's adding now another layer to to what you're dealing with. How do you then approach that situation? Yeah, it's really tricky because I, I think too the other part in post acute care is we get some diagnostic momentum. So you might have, um, you know, that start with uh, the patient family member and then you know a nurse and then you know it, it might snowball to by the time it gets to you, you're dealing with a lot of people that are you're feeling the pressure basically to, to start an antibiotic. And if they are, you know, asymptomatic and at least by the, our usual criteria and you're trying to push back, I think the, the couple things, I think number one is to try to um, establish rapport with, you know, patients and families. And I just try to get a little more information about, you know, historically, I mean, did they have, most of, a lot of times I'll hear them, oh, they've, they ended up in the hospital and almost died because, you know, somebody missed something like this. And so I'll address that and just explain that, you know, that is, that is an unusual thing, but here are the things that we will do to try to prevent that. We're not going to start the antibiotic. Here are the reasons why, but here are the, the steps I'm going to take to make sure that, you know, if, if things progress, that we address, 
you know the the issue and and we're gonna keep a close eye on them and we're gonna recheck again and you know i'm gonna check in the next day and so try to try to do some reassurance but i think as as i'm sure you're aware it's it's very difficult when there's um, a lot of emotion involved and uh, a history of of events and and so i think it it can become very challenging to to have those yeah. discussions and it's interesting as we have all of we have initiatives around antibiotic stewardship initiatives around psychotropic stewardship um opioid use uh, there there are a lot of things that we're doing and then it gets sometimes it can be derailed because that one individual from the family doesn't understand it and then everybody i don't want to call it cave but sometimes we we may yield to what is being requested and i think to your point you have to establish that rapport and have those conversations as early as possible um i often found the same way i don't like surprises many family members don't want to be surprised with the call that their loved one is either being transferred out or something is happening and they need it done stat when if we called a couple of days later a couple of hours earlier or a couple of days earlier rather a couple of hours earlier in certain situations maybe we could have had a, a different outcome because we we got their buy-in yeah and, and talk about the downside too and say that you know there are reasons why we don't prescribe antibiotics in this situations and here are those reasons but i just want to reassure you that you know i'm i'm going to be closely monitoring and you know making sure that this this decision is is a good one and you know we will change course if if we need to and you know sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't but you know i think that the i think we all need to make those efforts i think it's uh, it's sometimes difficult you know with our time and and the energy it takes to put into that to develop the rapport and discuss those things i think um I think oftentimes, I mean, you said it, I think we cave um, and, and, you know, we, we all can do a better job. I think if we support each other and um, have those, those same conversations over and over again. Well, Travis, I thank you. I thank you for not only writing the article, but being so open and passionate about this subject and having this conversation with me. I thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure. I think it's uh, I do think it's an important topic and uh, I think the more that we talk about it uh, all collectively, I think the better that we will all do at sort of identifying our own um, biases and hopefully make better decisions. So thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us and we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Travis. This was great. Yeah, that was good. Okay. All right. Look for it to come out soon. Okay. Thank you right. for being so patient with us. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> right. No problem. Take care. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you. Bye. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits, for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's apex.paltc.org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.
This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals.